Is that what I'm saying? Rough Trade Radio. 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 How's that? Hello, I have a microphone. I'm not sure that I need it because I'm noisy, but I'm going to use it. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming out at lunchtime. We're going to have a nice discussion about the Beastie Boys. Hooray! Um, my name's Miranda Sawyer. We are here to celebrate the Beastie Boys and also the collaboration between the band and Sonos, which has culminated in today's release of the limited edition Play 5, which is a really brilliant speaker, and it's coming out today, and it's only sold here in the UK, um, and it's got artwork from uh, the BC's longtime friend and collaborator, Barry McGee. So if you're feeling flush, spend your money on that, especially because the proceeds from the sales are going to Peace Sisters and Little Kids Rock in the name of the Adam Yauch Foundation. And literally, this is the only place you can get it. Don't try and get it on Amazon. It's not going to work, okay? You have to be here. All right. So we're going to have a chat for around about 45 minutes about the Beastie Boys, um, about um, how they've influenced music in general and how they've influenced uh, us on the panel, possibly how they've influenced you. There is a microphone there, can you see? So I might throw open to questions from you if you feel like you want to ask questions. Just think of some, you know, just little chatty questions. Um, but let's start. I'm going to introduce my uh, guests. Don Letts is over there. <laughs> yep. Record producer, Greetings. filmmaker, band manager, Grammy Award winner, DJ, the great Don Letts. Let's have a round of applause. Band manager. Well, kind of. Band man what the fuck? Band manager. That's what my credentials. Slits. Well, you know, the I like the slits. Okay. All right. I only <laughs> tried to manage them. <laughs> yeah, tried to manage the slits. Moved on. Okay. Uh, James Lavelle, who founded Mowax in 92 and Uncle also in 92, which is, I never know how to describe Uncle. Should I call it collaborative musical project? You can. Yeah. Okay, I'll call it that. And um, did indeed work with uh, Mike D from the Beastie Boys in 98 and has gone on record to say that he was inspired by the Beastie Boys. Um, he's given us his favourite Beastie Boys tracks, which we might introduce all the way through. And Don has also given us one. Um, and I've got one of, well, I had my favourite one, but James picked it. It wasn't sort of favourite. I just thought there's so many good yeah, Beastie Boys tracks, but I sort of were kind of more key in yeah. my relationship with them. Okay, for, brilliant. So I think we should rewind. And the reason why I think we should rewind is because um, if you think about the Beastie Boys as an entity, they came out of a very particular time in New York. They were all... Uh, born and brought up in New York, in different parts of New York. So uh, Mike D was up a west side and uh, uh, Adrock was kind of uh, more lower east side and um, uh, Yout was Brooklyn, but they all grew up in New York and they all met in New York. And they've gone on records to say that it's a very particular time, very particular kind of music and scene that created the Beastie Boys. And I wanted to talk to you about that, Don, because I know you were... <laughs> I know you were around, and it was a similar kind of scene that was around in the punk years in the UK, wasn't it? Yeah, I was fortunate enough to be living in New York from summer of 81 to summer of 82. An incredible time to be there. Because, uh, you know, like we'd had this kind of punky reggae thing going on in the UK in the late 70s, by the early 80s, it, there was a kind of punky hip-hop thing going on. 
Because a lot of these kids, like the Beastie Boys, who I met back then, I didn't realize they were the Beastie Boys, they were informed by the energy of punk, but were also turned on by the emerging hip-hop sounds and production things. And, uh, yeah, I remember seeing them in a club called The Grill. It's like a reggae club. And I think I remember they had this record out, Cookie Puss, because they started out, as, as you said, as a punk rock band. But at the time, I have to be honest, I thought it was just some kind of novelty thing. Didn't really take that much notice of them. And I was there with The Clash, and right, and in those days, they sort of ruled. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I was very aware of these young whippersnappers that were pretenders to the throne back then. Yeah. They said, there's a really brilliant bit in the book, actually, where they describe coming to um, London, and they arrive, and this is this kind of ridiculously epic, situation for them where they end up going to Mick Jones's house and then literally they get there's a ring on the doorbell and Johnny Rotten turns up and then there's another ring on on the doorbell and Paul Simonon turns up and they all go out together which was obviously completely blew blew their minds and they've had um Mike in particular cited the clash as a kind of influence for what they were doing Oh, no, the Clash fucking ruled in New York. I mean, it kind of inspired... Just like the Pistols inspired shed loads of people here, the Clash did the same in New York City, and I think that was because they embraced... It wasn't just about the fast and furious guitars. The Clash were the ones that were embracing what was going on around them, and that was hip-hop. Yeah. You know, and at that time, the Clash had this record, uh, Magnificent Seven, and it was the only white record that was played on this black hip-hop station... WBLS. Yeah. Serious kudos. Yeah, yeah. And what about you, James? I mean, because you're uh, around the same age as the Beasties, but younger, aren't you? Yeah, I'm a little bit younger. And they, and they, I know you've gone on record to say that they influenced you, but were you aware of a kind of, you know, it wasn't until I was older that I realised that New York in the kind of late 70s, early 80s was a particular kind of interesting uh, time and place you know and were you ever were you ever aware of that when you were younger or did you just yeah I mean I I was really into collecting those records that were coming out that time yeah. so you know you again things like Magnificent Dance was how I sort of discovered bands like The Clash yeah um I bought Cookie Puss not when it came out but later on it was kind of one of the sort of obscure records that you needed to find yes if you quite, were actually yes. into kind of a so more not 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 a hip-hop thing but more that sort of post-punk yeah. sound that was coming out of New York at the time. But I'm, I'm in the generation where I was there the first time around with the Beastie Boys as a kid, yeah. stealing VW signs and <laughs> things like that. Yeah. I mean, at school, the big thing then was you had the VW sign thing, but then it was about getting the better car sign. So it's actually true that in the end, because of the Beastie Boys, the, the, it was such an epidemic of people stealing, stealing car signs that it was actually how they invented wiring in uh, the car side yeah, into the cars because <laughs> the epidemic of things being stolen. So if you could get a, a Mercedes, yeah, if you could get a Ferrari off. or something like that, then you were really <laughs> doing well. With air, you were there. So I went through that wave. And then I got back into the Beastie Boys when I started working in London um, when I was about 14 because I was really into sort of cut and paste hip hop records. And um, Paul's Boutique came out. Yeah. And uh, there was a record called 33% God, which was the instrumental of Hey Ladies. Yeah. And I loved that record. And it was just, it was quite an interesting time because at that point, literally, 
you couldn't sell a Beastie Boys record. Yeah. And I love the stories of every, how everybody says they bought Paul's Boutique when it came out. It's a bit like when everybody said they went to the gig to see the Sex Pistols in Manchester or whatever. Everybody did nobody, in Manchester. No, nobody was there, but <laughs> the few people that bought the record were kind of, yeah, uh, changed. Kind of changed people. But I've yeah. got to admit that I know Paul's Boutique didn't do that well, but I got it straight away. I was amazed yeah. by the quantum leap of production. i got to be honest. But I, you're right, it, it didn't do the same as the debut album. No, it didn't. I think I want to talk about Paul's I'm doing. I'm going to be very boring and chronological, so I'm going to talk about Paul's music in a bit, but I want to talk about a bit about the impact of when they... I mean, you were just talking about as, as a kid, and I think there's certain bands with certain records where they come out and they just... They, they're kind of designed for 11-year-old boys, and I would say The Prodigy's Firestarter is one, yeah. and I would definitely say that Fight for Your Right to Party is one, and actually, weirdly, Sabotage is also one. But... Um, those when you get hit by that kind of um, rebellion in one record and you see the people on the video and you think, this is me, if only I was like four years older or five years older. It's quite a kind of, um, it's like a touch paper being lit, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they're, in, they're really interesting in that way because like a band like The Prodigy, they sort of, they, came, they also had some very sort of um, relevantly hardcore records within the scene. So yes. Slow and Low was is considered one of the greatest hip hop records ever made. Yeah. Let it flow, let yourself go, so and low, that is the tempo.
so you kind of had that, and just because I was into hip hop, you kind of discovered them through that. But then you had the kind of the twist into you know fight yeah. for your right and yeah. how that affected you just being a young kid being into you know what well, it just makes you want on, to jump you know? up and down doesn't yeah. it that's yeah. the point of yeah. it really yeah it, it kind of i don't know embraces that blind energy of youth yeah. and, and sort of totally unapologetic you know yeah. i mean later on they apologize for it you know the first album yeah i think they wanted it to be called I know it's yeah, bad. Don't be a faggot. Yeah, it was called Don't Be oh a Faggot. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which they apologized for that. later. Yeah. But that's, that gives you a, an idea of the level of intellectuality that was there in that first record. It weren't about that. It was about that, fuck you, I'm a young white kid and I'm having it. Yeah. You know. yeah. I think you get and I liked it because of that. Yeah. You know? Did you see them on the first tour then? Absolutely. The I was at Brixton, the girls in the cages, the big dicks. That was me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and how was it? Because it must have been, I mean, obviously... I wasn't. I didn't go, but yeah. the 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 energy from the videos and the stuff like that. It looks really brilliant, but it is you know ridiculous. It's huge, you know, hydraulic penises. Yeah, I mean, <sighs> fucking. You know, what can you say about that? I mean, at the time, even I was like, really, you know. But don't forget, I'm ten years older than those guys. Yeah. And uh, I mean, they were looking for a reaction. I mean, when you're young and you know you got you're making your first record, you're not going to get too intellectual about it. You know what I mean? But what was interesting about the Beastie Boys is that you know it didn't take them long to kind of grow up and grow out of a lot of that stuff. I mean, that whole thing when they came over and they became the new urban folk devils and the press are hammering them. You know, they kind of got what was it? Bill Grundy in a way. Yeah, yeah. Ad, Ad Rock got destroyed. I mean, yeah, they, they actually completely. they actually said off that tour they were never they'd never come back to the UK. Yeah. yeah, but I don't think it was about so much about coming back to you. I think it was about them realizing what they were falling into. Mm. You know, and sort of waking up and like, oh shit, this is serious. Yeah, yeah. it kind of feels like it, it was, was a wake up call. Sort of, it was sort of also quite a sort of Rick Rubin influence in that sort of direction. I think, and also when when we saw them the other week talking. They said that, that, you know, the, the Madonna thing was the sort of big... They yeah. knew that having to go on to stage and, you know, this new music, that they weren't going to... They weren't kind of considered the best rappers, so they needed to make another kind of Yeah, they need to make another noise, yeah. And yeah. that kind of just yeah, step it up propelled it. You know, it just kind of went out of, out of control, I think, you know. Yeah, and I think that this is... I mean, there are things in the Beastie Boys that are completely unusual, and there are things in the Beastie Boys that happen to a lot of bands. And I think that if you have an enormous hit when you're really young, you quite often just get locked into a cartoon version of yourself, and it's really, really hard to shape that cartoon, particularly if the tabloids have the idea of what that you interpretation. are. But they weren't that stupid, that's what I'm saying. I think it was a much-needed wake-up call that, you know, they couldn't just become what parodies of themselves. And they yeah. had to con take control of what they wanted to be. Yeah. And when you went to that gig, I just want to know, like, if you were, when you were there, you, it was obviously really energetic. Did you think they were good? I mean, like, were they a brilliant band to watch in those days? Absolutely. I mean, there was dynamic punk rock energy. Not a lot of thought, it has to be said. But as far <laughs> as a, an interesting stage show, you know... The moral compass was out the window, but yeah, no, it was a blinding show. When you, course, see, when you see that audience. show, you, can't, you don't even see you can hear anybody doing anything. It looks so chaotic. It was. I mean, it was very much like an early punk rock show, you know what yeah. I mean? And just that energy in a room where the band are energetic, the crowd are energetic. Yeah, it ticked all the boxes. Well, nearly all of them. I was so yeah. desperate to go. I wasn't, I was too young. My cousin <laughs> went. I was so upset. What year was that? Remind me. But it must have been 87, 86, 86, yeah. Shit. Wasn't it Delirium, one of them? One of those I, Brixton, I think it was I because it, it was Brixton, but the first one I think was at the Astoria, and that was with LL. That was one of the, the first Def Jam tour here, I think. Yeah, it's all a blur. So I think it was, public, it was 
Was, was anything they young laughing enemy LL Cool J? And then they came 87 and then they went to Liverpool and that's where um, Ad Rock got arrested. Ad Rock got, got arrested, yeah. yeah. And there's some lovely pictures of him in the in the book and indeed, you know, on the record of him in a beautiful kind of gangster hat. It yeah, suddenly and looks like really 1920s sort yes, of in 1920s look really... to go to, to court, which is quite sweet. Anyway, after that, all the kind of furore of the first album, they come back to New York and the dust settles and they realise kind of two things. They realise, first of all, that they don't want to be that band anymore. And secondly, they have made absolutely no money at all. Um, and... Uh, due to, you know, the long-standing ideas that often happen, that uh, they signed the wrong kind of contract and the people who made the money was Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin. And they made, had made nothing, really, um, despite selling millions of records. So then, after that, Russell Simmons said, why don't you go into the um, studio and make, and make License to Wheel Part 2? And they say, no. And this seems to me to be the single most important decision that they made in their career. They just said, no, we're not doing that. That's quite hard to do, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, one of the most attractive things about Beastie is that they never gave the audience what they wanted. They were continuously re-examining what they did and trying to be better people. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's the end, you know, be honest with you. I mean, they embraced the fact that they'd done some fucked up things. And I think throughout their whole career, they were always putting their hands up and was like, all right, maybe that was a mistake. Yeah. You know, but besides all that stuff, I mean, sonically, it was a much more mature record, this thing. Yeah. You know, when... I always wish I had an instrument version of the whole album. You I know. do. <laughs> <laughs> of course yeah. you do. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Later. yeah. No, I mean, what they were doing with the whole sample, and they just took it to somewhere else, man. Yeah. I mean, really. I mean, I, what was I was reading the other day when I was researching this in, yeah. in the spirit of tr professionalism? They, they called it the Sergeant Peppers of hip hop, they called it. Yeah. And I kind of dug that. Yeah, yeah, it's very true. I also think it's very important that they moved to L.A. Yeah. And L.A. is really, it has an interesting relationship with New York, but it has what it had at the time, is a, it's kind of physical space. And because Paul's Boutique was not a hit, they were basically left to do what they wanted, weren't they? Yeah, but they did, I mean, they signed a massive deal with Capital. Yeah. So I think they kind of, they, had they were expected and they were to, expected to, to do the next 10 million <laughs> records. And But I think also what was really interesting about this, how they, I think, when you go back to the beginning of the Beastie Boys, pre-License um, to Ill, in the sense of what they were doing as young kids, yeah. they were very inventive. They were very musically aware. You yeah. know, they were, and, and that sort of comes out in their decisions in the sense that with Paul's Boutique, you know, they ended up working with Matt Dyke yeah. and the Dust Brothers. Yeah. And they were also, you know, became incredibly influential. And, and just the, the fact that culturally how they managed to go from essentially Rick and, 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 and Russell, who were the kind of the pioneers of New York hip hop in many ways. And then they ended up working with the people that became the pioneers really of LA uh, hip hop because yep. it was Delicious Vinyl, yep. who had the first, I think, I think the first number one hip hop single was Tone Loke. Oh, okay, yeah, I yeah. think they were the first number one album and I think Tone Loke was the first yeah, number so one Yeah, so that's single. a beautiful connection. Yeah, so it's an interesting, as far as the history and landscape of that music, how yeah. they were, they ended up, being part of so many of the movements that followed. And there's also a weird kind of art New York connection because Matt Dye also did a lot of work with Basquiat. With Basquiat. Yeah, he had one of the best Basquiat collections in the world. Yes, yeah, yeah. so, so which is, and Basquiat also did the same thing. He moved to LA in order to get rid of that kind of New York vibe and then and did a lot of um, really great work over there. Yeah, I mean, the irony is the, the, the first thing me and Mike D ever spoke about was 
Beatbox, which was the Jean-Michel Basquiat produced yeah. record. And they wanted to, and he wanted to produce one of their records as well. Yeah. I, it, I don't know, something happened and it didn't happen. But and anyway. Well, Mike's wife, ex-wife, she made the most recent yeah, Basquiat brilliant documentary. documentary yeah. Yeah. And she was, they were best friends. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's the art bit. Um, but when you're in, when they were in LA, there's a, um, there's a creativity that was always there that is allowed to flourish, isn't there? So they they basically make Paul's Boutique, which is an immensely creative album and actually couldn't really be made now because every, every sample would have to be cleared. It would be a bit of a disaster. But they, they after that, and they realise that people are not looking at them in quite that same way, they use that time and that energy to create lots of different things. I mean, you know, a really brilliant magazine. I was working in magazines at the time and Grand Royale, Grand Royale was the thing that everybody wanted to make. I was working for Select Magazine and, and all the Select boys and all the NME boys and all people like Loaded, that's the magazine they wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, that's the time that I really started working with them because yeah. Moax and Grand Royale, we partnered up on a lot of records. So we yeah. did Money Mark, we did Liquid Liquid, Sukia, and we actually worked and it unfortunately never happened. It was always meant to be this Moax versus Grand Royale kind of oh, that would have been DJ really Shadow, Beastie Boys kind of collaborative record. And unfortunately it never happened. But yeah. but it was Sound really class. interesting what they, you know, they created like, like with Moax, it was these sort of, this independent kind of cultural group of people that were coming together and hanging out. It was very much, it wasn't just about the music. It That's was right. yeah. the art side of it. Like a creative were, club. Yeah. And yeah. it was, they had this amazing place in um, Atwater, yeah. Gsum Studios, where they had a basketball court and they had the studio and the office. And they did, um, they did uh, clothes as yeah. well. Yeah. Well, Mike was sort of vaguely involved with Extra Large. Yeah. So I was going to LA a lot because I was actually started working with Delicious Vinyl yep. first in, in America. And uh, I started, I met Mike in New York, but then I, I had sort of continued the relationship going to LA and going to, and hanging out in that office. And actually the first pre-science fiction recordings were done in their studio. Okay. And it was we, basically, you sort of had Grand Royale, Moax, you had Bathing Ape in Japan, these sort yep. of cultural, there was Source in France, you know, and there were all these sort of cultural groups that were sort of doing more than just music and yeah and it was also the sort of it was yeah, it was just this amazing young group of people max burgos who ran the label ended up running moax in america yeah. for a while and, and when you were there so i mean i i didn't go to g's I, uh, my problem is my memory is a bit iffy around the 90s but I, me I remember going to mike d's house in la but i don't think i went to gson and gson i've seen the plans in the book and it was it was quite an unusual kind of place because it was quite big wasn't it it was huge yeah i mean yeah. it was about the size of here it? yeah and it was a, just big. a big basketball court there was a studio off the a basketball skateboard ramp wasn't there skateboard ramp and then upstairs was upstairs was a record label and the magazine but it was you know it was pretty it was pretty diy it wasn't zhuzhi and you know it was pretty kind of um yeah it was kind of punk rock you know yeah. it was kind of you know and it was but it was just such an amazing energy and again you know like moax we were doing all these things where we weren't really thinking unfortunately about the financial return <laughs> um yeah. so most of the projects that we worked on or when they were doing you know grand royale it was kind of more expensive to make the magazine than what it, it was the sort of Blue Monday scenario. The magazine cost more than, <laughs> yeah. than what you paid for it, you know. Um, but it was just this moment, and I think it was a, there was a sort of global moment of this amazing sort of young creativity happening at that period of the 90s, you know. Yeah. And, and that was sort of after... So basically, that was after Check Your Head. That was really the sort of when they 
suddenly became the global superstars again yeah, with because, ill communication. Yeah, with, and that was really because of sabotage, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, sort of. I mean, they, together, Check Your Head had Check Your Head was to me was actually I I I think that record's the, was kind of the most important in the sense of it. It was the record that kind of bridged everything, brought everything back to much more of a sort of musical uh, uh, landscape where, the, where there's punk, there was jazz, there was soul, there was yeah. hip hop. And that record was a kind of the record that anybody that was into good records, you know, would, would, have. would have that record. It's like and, then it, and then it, beca- <laughs> yeah, and then it became, and then obviously it became mass again. Yeah. And Mike, it was interesting because I, I actually met Mike through Slam City Skates. Yeah. And Slam City Skates was oh, at the bottom of gig. Rough Trade. I remember that. And, and Mike D came over and because they were doing extra large and because they'd had such a bad time with with um, their relationship with England after yeah. uh, Licence to Ill, that he started just kind of hanging out in London and wanting to meet people. And Moax was just happening. And my friend Russell, who, who was running the clothes uh, part there, they had a label called Insane, basically hooked us up. Yeah. And he wanted to meet people for them to come back to London and sort of they would sort of have those people help them do gigs and whatever. And that was, for me, that was one of the most important moments for my career because... The enemy headline was Beastie Boys are coming back because of Moax. Yeah, nice. You know, and yeah. he and Mike was kind of like, yeah, we want to come and get involved now because of this label and because of what's going on with places like Slam and this sort of yeah. new movement. I remember, I do remember this actually, going to a gig in Slam City Skates that yeah. they did. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I was really, it was incredibly tiny space and it was, you know, everyone was really squashed up and but what I was really noticed was that they were really good. Yeah. So there was a point between kind of when they were completely mad on stage and that point in Slum City Skates, which was like the mid-90s, wasn't it? Yeah. That they they be, had become really brilliant musicians. They were moving between different um, instruments. They had Money Mark involved. They had Money Mark. And like and it, they so were a, more proper, of a, band, a proper band. Band aesthetic, you know. Um, and it was that time in LA that gave them the time to do it because yeah. everybody assumed they were just over there kind of, I don't know, f- I think the technical term is fannying about and well, they were but, actually kind of... But I think with hard. Check Your Head, you've got to remember that the Check Your Head was very important with them because they became this live phenomenon yeah. and they, they basically, it was Lala Palooza that reinvigorated the Beastie Boys yeah. and they were the headliners of whatever the first Lala Palooza or second tour, yeah. I think. And that suddenly, it just changed everything because they became the best live hip-hop band in the world and really up until that point whilst hip-hop was incredibly you know brilliant records were being made etc and there was some good shows most of the shows weren't very good yeah so they became the kind of the best hip-hop band in the world
And it's interesting with Lollapalooza as well because that's going to bring in all the the kind of well, it was the punk thing right. also that I think it just brought again. They they still captured that young kind of fuck you energy yeah. by reintroducing the punk thing. I didn't know enough it was about them by going back to instruments. Yeah, in a weird yeah. Way. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very true. Yeah. But I didn't know so much about them pre-licensed to will in the way that I know now. Yeah. And especially when we we saw them the other day when they were doing the talk, I didn't realise how sort of knowledgeable, how involved they were in punk rock in yeah. New York. So obviously when you, you know now and hearing Check Your Head, you totally get yeah, those references. Yeah, but yeah. I think they they just managed, you know, you, you had the sort of, the, they kind of created the beginning of the rock hip-hop thing, yeah. you know, in the sense of live, which then you had bands like Rage Against the Machine yeah, came out, from, out that, you know, yeah. but they were highly respected also by the hip hop community because, regardless of all the all the stuff that went on with License Hill and actually not really Paul's Boutique, things like Slow and Low and Hold It Now Hit It yeah. were still, you know, they were they were regarded as some of the most important hip hop records ever yeah. made. So they sort of had they had both communities supporting. Yeah, working. You know. I want to talk a little bit about the um, the gig that I know that we were all at. I know we went to see the Beastie Boys do a kind of a reading, a performance of their book the other day, um, because it raised a couple of questions for me. And one of them is, what do you do if you are a really brilliant performer? You can make, you you are, you know, a great, as you just said, a great kind of hip hop live band. <coughs> and you can't really do that anymore because essentially one third of you is not here. And they had, they were trying to make a kind of performance out of the book, which is very hard to do. But there was something about it that you you can sense that you miss that kind of liveness. I wanted to ask you, Don, about that, really. I think out of respect, mm. they obviously feel, and they can't do what they did as no. the trio. That's gone. Yeah. But, you know, if Yacht was around today, man, what would he want them to do? Mm. He'd want them to do whatever the fuck they wanted to do. That was his thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? He was, you know, as they said, over and over, the driving force, you know, to have a go, try new ideas, keep reinventing yourself. And, uh, yeah, I'm figuring that they will find other ways to go on in that same spirit, yeah. but not necessarily be the Beastie Boys. Yeah, because they can't really. Yeah. That's yeah. done. Yeah, it has to be done. But it was interesting seeing performers on stage performing, but in a book way, wasn't it? I thought it was, it was very indicative of their kind of... Well, how they made videos and stuff. I think, you know, yeah. it, was, it was kind of haphazard, you <laughs> yeah. know, self-deprecating, yeah. funny, you know. I was really touched to see that they were the same lovable dicks they always were, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's true. They had yeah, a really... And it was pretty amazing seeing Ad-Rock looking at himself back in the day and, yeah. you know, because he did look fucking ridiculous. Yeah. And also there's a very fun, there's some funny bits where they're on the, they're on essentially on a soul show and they must be, they're very young, aren't they? They're like, I don't know, 19, 20, completely gawky. And making idiots of themselves on this soul. Well, that was part of Paul's boutique because they only got on one TV show, which and that was Soul that. Train. Yeah, it's but, Soul Train. But I thought right. the most interesting was they showed a video of when they released Cookie Puss, and Africa Bombata was on television. Yeah, and Ad Rock was in the back, and he must have been like seven. And he just 16. rushed in, hadn't he? And he just sort of like asked Africa Bombata if he'd heard the Cookie Puss record. <laughs> it was, but he was—he didn't look like a hip hop kid. He looked like a kind of. Very prepubescent yeah. teenager. He looked like a schoolboy. School, school yeah, know? he yeah. just definitely looked like a schoolboy. Yeah, it's very true. Um, so if you think after the LA years, there's a point where they actually um, become a very big band again. They they do, and it's interesting that one of the tracks that you pick is um, you picked is Get It Together, which is the one that I would have picked, oh. <laughs> and that was a kind of a double A side. But the reason why I really love that record is because it 
shows two aspects of them. One is kind of slightly stoned, but creative, you know, phone is ringing, oh my God, get it together side. And the other side is, is sabotage. <laughs> One, two, one, two, keep it on. Listen to the shit because we keep it till dawn. Listen to the ass track, got it going on. Listen to the ladies, come on and let me spawn. Or your eggs, then you go up the river. Listen to the ass track, that freaky nigga. Now, I'm at rock and I shock and I tick and I talk and I can't stop with the body rush. See, I got hot like John Stars. He is Max Fox. Pass me the mic and I'll be rocking the whole part. Oh, I'm the M to the C to the A and it's a boss. The rhymes that we boss on the topic of lust. <laughs> And my mouth is not blood, but fuck it, let me get down to the rhythm. Yes, I get funky and I shoot an automatism like John Bones, the X-rated nigga. Listen to the shit, cause I am the ill figure. Nobody's getting any bigger than this. Phone is ringing, oh my god. For them is bony, gotta do it like this, like Chachi and Joni. Cheese and cheese, and I'm the macaroni. So why all the fight? Why all the fuss? Cause ah, I ain't got no Yeah, you know I'm getting silly. Got a gram more hazel and a gram more chili. I'm the grand royal prince, and I'm also a member. Born on the cusp in the month of November. I do the patty tongue in the case you don't remember. Well, I freak a fucking beat like the shit was in a blender. Gonna get it together, watch it Gonna get it together, my bell Like my 
my bell, I got the ill communication. My bell, 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 keep it on and on and on and on. And I think also, just for me, it was it was just such a brilliant comeback hip hop record because it was yeah. it had Q Tip on it. Yeah. And you know, I loved all the the kind of collaborative side of those of those. You know, check your head, ill communication. I loved. You know, you had Biz Marquis, you had Q Tip, and all these people involved. Yeah. And, uh, but that yeah. record particularly is just yeah. mad, isn't but it? But that was that was the single that they actually they did that as a promo before sabotage so that was the kind of cool record that they came out with to I've kind of engage it. with the you know first actually with the hip-hop community they yeah. wanted to come back and and be you know have that respect again yeah and that record kind of suddenly you heard the bc boys in every hip-hop club again. yeah it's very true um and you want um one of the tracks that you picked was um intergalactic and that is a big it's a big record in the way that kind of what we were talking about fight for your right Sabotage, like if you're a kid and you yeah. see that record, that is going to blow your mind. I mean, what I thought was interesting, it was a big record way late in their career that still retained all the initial ingredients that turned me on. And I, yeah. I was saying to you earlier, you know, I mean, that, that lyrical wordplay. You know, it's interesting, we listen to Beastie Boy lyrics. On one level, it's amazingly childlike, but on another level, totally surreal. Yeah. I think Intergalactic is probably the best example of that.
which we haven't talked about, but I'm going to ask you also to contribute in about five minutes, is the dressing up aspect. This is very important. Not particularly embraced by you, James, the dressing no, up aspect. No, no. no, you've pretty much remained con constant in your dress, I would say. Um, but their dressing up aspect is really strong, isn't it? It's, it's that funny thing. I don't know where it came from, but you get the sense that yeah. they just, they were, because they were so young growing up together, it's yeah. this sort of continuous sort of adolescent <laughs> behavior. It was like when, when, when Adrock told the story about the ring and this yeah. ring that he'd been given on tour and he kind of threw this ring away because he thought it, it was bring bad, luck, bad luck. And 15 years later, it was in his bag. And Yao could put it back in his bag 15 years later. Just and it's just, it out. seems like it's that perpetual yeah. thing. But it's also quite an American, I think it's quite an American thing as well. I think just that whole kind of, there's a sort of piss take element to what you're doing. It was sort of quite a, it just sort of reminds me also a lot of what, you know, LA a bit as well, you know. I think when they did, because when they did um, uh, Paul's Boutique, they rented this mad house. Yes. And in the house, they found this, you know, the door that they were told not to open, they opened the door, and it was the ultimate collection of kind of 70s pimp clothing. Yeah, and mostly women. And it's sort of, they just sort of, from there, they kind of... Like mostly women stuff. Yeah, that's what, that's what I really like about it. They just had all these beautiful kind of frocks and mad suits and hats. But even in Grand Royale, that's, I mean, most of their fashion was just dressing up, wasn't it, really? Or yeah. taking, or putting wigs on, bringing back the mullet. But the whole crew were like that. Like, you know, yeah. Spike John's, you know, they're all kind of, uh, uh, I think there was a, a lot of sort of just funny, you know, pranks, pranking kind of stuff going on with, yeah. with that, that lot. Pranking, that's yeah. where it's coming yeah. from. Oh, my God, yeah, that's it. Directly led to, um, oh, that, uh, anyway. Um, the, what I wanted to also ask you a little bit about was about Yauk and um, his trips to Tibet and what he brought Back to the Beastie Boys about that because I know that you, I mean you know a little bit about that, don't you? Yeah, I mean I think well, it's, it's common knowledge that you know as the guys are growing up, they're traveling around the world, particularly Yauk. He encounters the whole Tibetan thing, and uh, you know I always thought it was interesting that the guys, like I said before, did a lot of serious growing up in public. Man, I mean, whoever thought that these kids that went on stage with girls in cages and sick twenty foot dicks, you know, <laughs> cut to twenty four years late, twenty years later, and they'd be you know, defending the Muslim faith and being the biggest supporters of women's rights. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that, to me, was is the most interesting thing about the Beast, is this honesty. 
They yeah. weren't afraid to grow up in public, put their hands up, admit when they made mistakes, and embrace new ideas. You know, become engaged with their fellow man, and become engaged with the fucking planet. You know, a long way from how they started. But it's a beautiful thing to see happen. Yeah. And I think they all, they all took Ooh, on a certain kind of responsibility. Other, sorry, I've got to say one other little thing. I've got to really say this is important. Travelling obviously opened Yark's eyes, but I think being surrounded by strong, empowered women also yeah. had a big impact on how they conducted themselves. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, it's quite interesting because you you think of the, obviously they're the beastie boys, but whenever I encountered them, they always had very uh, they had strong female partners. There was quite a lot of women around. It's just that it wasn't so maybe so documented. Yeah, and I think I think also each one of each one of them individually sort of had a certain kind of character that they pushed you know i think you know meeting you he was deeply spiritual he was also very much in his head he was the sort of thought person you know adrock was much more kind of the sort of fun guy yeah. and mike kind of took on the business persona you know the record label and da, da, da. And, and and i think each of that they, they sort of complemented each other but i think one of the reasons that they won't probably do anything is i think yeah was just incredibly he was an incredibly strong you know, uh, very considered person, you know, yeah. and I think he brought just this, this level, this other worldly level to what they were doing, I think. You know? Yeah. And also, also, you know, it brought some amazing gigs. I mean, he organized fantastic. Yeah. Kind Tibet, of... The Tibetan freedom concerts were amazing. Yeah. I mean, he actually, we, I, I he kind of one of the last times that I really hung out with him was we were going to do one in London and he asked me to help him yeah. put it together, but it didn't happen. Yeah. 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 Okay. I can see you all in the dark. You are there. Hello. Um, would you like to talk to us? Would you like a microphone? And you can you can join in the conversation. You can shout. You can, well, to be honest, you can shout. Or are you going to wave at me and ask me a question? Oh, look, you're all too shy, aren't you? Oh, look at you. Just like us. Because we can waffle on. I mean, it's kind of, you know, we like to waffle. Should we carry on waffling on because you don't want to ask questions? Yeah, go, on. go on, then. We'll waffle. <laughs> okay. We'll waffle for another five minutes, okay? Um, right. I want to ask you about the physicality of a place because Don and I were talking about this a bit. Where? The physicality of New York at a particular time and the physicality oh. of LA at a particular time and the physicality of London now. So one of the things that you sometimes hear, we, Don and I were talking about this, from, and I hate to, hesitate to use this word, but I'm going to use it, young people, mm. is that, oh... I, you know, you look back at punk, it was really great. I even have people going, God, the 90s were really amazing. And you're a bit like, really? Okay. Um, but there is, a, and partly, I, you know, I have two things to say. One is just go out and do stuff, which I generally would always push on anybody. That's the punk attitude. But there was physical space to do those things, I think, in New York at that time, in LA at that time. And it doesn't feel quite as much as though there is around places like London now. Yeah, I think that's why. That's why you know when when you went to somewhere like Grand Royal or similar to Moax, we it was just a, a time where you could sort of do these quite mad things. You could get a building quite easily. It was all, but it was all very DIY. It was all kind of, you know, you didn't sign the right contracts or care about. You know, it yeah. was just that time. And I think New York, you know, was the, you know was very much like that until they left. And New York, you know, New York was kind of the first city to change in that way yeah you know then it was london and now it's sort of la you know yeah but i think it was a, a very it was just a very interesting time sort of lunatics it was the last time the lunatics were running the asylum yeah. it's also <laughs> that the record industry was very different 
you know. And so a lot of those records came out at times where the record industry was just a, a lot more sort of, again, lunatics running in the asylum. It wasn't so corporate, you know. Yeah. There was a different kind of freedom, you know. I don't know nowadays if you could go and do a check your head after doing, you know, Paul's Boutique, where you probably got, you know, let's say they got a million dollar advance, which would be like getting, you know, 10, 20 million now. Yeah. And if the record fails, yeah, literally sells 50,000 copies after the last record sold 10 million yeah. and still be able to put out another record out, you know. And I think that was, you know, there was just, that was very much because of the economics of the time, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's about the economy, man. Yeah. You know. And, and space and people and the world, the landscape of the world has changed and that has changed how creativity evolves, I think. But it was just, it was, I think it was the last time where it was just a lot freer and a lot easier to do certain things, you know. Yeah. And there was a different kind of support because most of the NR guys and the people running the record companies were still music guys. So if you had somebody, you had, if, you sat, if you had somebody behind you, you know, don't forget, you know, you talk about whether it's David Bowie or Elton John or any of these, you know, people that we see as, you know, some of the most important, most successful musicians ever, they didn't happen for the third, fourth or fifth record, yeah. you know. So, but it was because they were supported by people that actually really believed in them and they could control their own financial strings. So if you own the record company, if you were, you know, or the head of a certain record company, you tended to be, have been there a long time. You didn't leave after six months, which happens now. And you, if you believed in a project, you kind of got there. to, you could hang in there, you know. You'd have yeah. a plan, you'd have a 10 record yeah. Album, yeah. album deal, expecting to maybe break at the third or fourth. Now, if you don't balance the books in three months, you're out in your fucking ear, you know. But then I suppose that you, the attitude would be that then you can go and do your own thing anyway, because punk is an attitude not music yeah yeah there is a punk spirit to it but you know the finances obviously come into play i mean in london you know back in the early late 70s in, in london in the early 80s in uh, new york there were cracks that you could operate in you know what i mean but now i'm not being funny but how creative or rebellious can you be if you're living with your mum till you're 30 and she's doing your washing up <laughs> that's what it's like for young people now yeah. you know what i mean yeah, there is. I mean, the economy has had a devastating impact on the quality of the art. Yeah. Simple as that, and that ain't just a London or a New York thing. It's an all every city. No, I agree. I think it's you know every. In fact, I actually think the definition of a city now and in the future is going to be too fucking expensive to live in. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think people need to get over that whole city mentality and think of new places of creativity. Yeah, interesting. Is there are there um, bands around now that you think that you can see a kind of Beasties influence in? I know that's quite hard. Yeah, I think there's a lot of. I mean, I think the eclecticness and the open-mindedness and the, the sort of and you know what they did with the such kind of samples and the production, I think has been a huge influence to records we listen to now. I mean, I think what is really great about modern music is it's so eclectic. Yeah. Whereas you know when Check Your Head came out and Paul's Boutique records like that. A lot of people didn't understand them because you were either you're you're either into hip hop or you're into rock. You're yeah, it's quite trendy, you know. And it? bands like the Beasties, I think, very much coming from what you what you did, and bands like the Clash, they kind of they they broke down those barriers, and that's what Mowax was all about, you know. And I think now you see that influence in in all kinds of music, and especially hip hop, yeah, because you know. Hip hop has gone through such a mad kind of relationship with itself in the same now that, you know, the, a lot of the 
the sort of um, the stuff that was the rule books is the rule book has been kind of ripped up, and yeah. in many ways, in a good way, because you know you can't be as misogynistic. You you know you can be gay. Yeah. You can you know you can be whoever you can be multicultural and be a rapper. You don't have to be from New York. Da da da. Yeah. That stuff is I I think what people like the Beastie Boys were very yeah, a more open-minded approach to the creative process. Yeah. You know, I'm being prepared to grow and not pander to what the people want. I think they're the things that, you know, that people have taken from the Beastie Boys. Yeah. And create your own universe, the idea that... You and know, be you. Yeah. You can be fucking you, man. You know? But it was also, you know, you had, the, you had the culture, you had the label, you had the, the magazine, you had the clothes, the whole... So in another way, you, that whole aesthetic is very much part of modern day musical culture. If you are a, a musician now, you tend to not just be a musician. You, yes, you do you know, lots You can of be things. a designer, you can be a video director, you can yeah. have your own clothing company. In those days, I mean, when I did that stuff, I remember, you know, half the reviews on things like science fiction were, how dare you do that? You can't make <laughs> toys and records and, you yeah. know. You should just and, concentrate and, and, on one and, thing. Yeah, and now I think that's what's, that, that landscape I think is brilliant, the way you can just be creative. Yeah, you know, I think that's true. And create your own universe, you know. And I and I think people like that's really one of the great sort of testaments to what bands yes. like the Beastie Boys have contributed to music. I know? think create your own universe is definitely yeah. the the answer. Okay, I'm gonna wind this up now, but I'm gonna ask you to both for just a little story. I can I can tell a story of my own, which is quite small and low key while you're thinking of a story, but just a story that represents to you um your, your encounters with the Beastie Boys and what they meant to you. And it can be something funny or something big, whatever. Anyway, I will tell you about how I nearly lost my uh, lip, lower lip, because of the Beastie Boys, which is quite simple. I just went to see them at the Astoria. It was around the same time as the Slam City Scapes, I think. And I went to see them at the Astoria and I was a huge fan. And I thought, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I'll go down the front. Yeah, that's a really good idea. And um, they played Sabotage, of course. And I have to say that I jumped at the right time. So it, where they went, and then jump, obviously. So I jumped at the right time. The bloke in front of me jumped late. So as I came down, he was going up, and I smashed my chin on his shoulder. And my tooth, <laughs> so beautiful, my tooth nearly went all the way through here. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm in the mosh pit. I better spin out. Spin, span out. Went to my boyfriend at the time. Have I done something? And I went like that, and he nearly puked. And then I went to go to the hospital, and they wouldn't stitch it because they said it's your mouth. You can't do anything about it. And you know what I did the next day? This is how much of an idiot I was. I went to Glastonbury, and didn't take any medicine, and stayed up all night chewing my face off. And I still have a lip, so I'm very happy that I still have a lip. But this is what the Beastie Boys did to me in those days. So. Um, Anyone else? You've I, got I was, more spiritual I was, doing, I was I, I, at that gig actually. I can remember that. So I DJed that gig. That was the comeback gig. That was the thing yeah, where I, that was the the enemy thing where they were like, "We're coming back," and James is DJing and Moax and and I loved. In I always liked cut and paste instrumental hip hop records. So I would always try and get the instrumentals off bands that I like. So when I became more friendly with Mike, I begged him to get me instrumentals of all the albums, and which he did. So, I, you know, Paul's Boutique, Check Your Head, and the new record, Ill Communication. Can I just say that Don is literally going like this with his fingers now, because he really wants them. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I was like, you know, one of the only people in the world, and probably at that point, apart from Hurricane, who was probably DJing, or maybe Mixed Master Mike, I think it was still Hurricane, and the band, nobody had those records. So I was gonna, I went on to DJ before them, 
And guess what I decided to do was play one of the instrumentals because I thought I was so cool. Bad move. Yeah. Like the whole place thought they were coming on. So <laughs> the whole place just went <laughs> insane. <laughs> And I just realised, oh, fuck, they're not coming on for another hour. And I've really fucked myself and had to kind of backtrack from there. So <laughs> the, the, the the moral of the story is never play a band's record as a DJ before they come on in any form. Otherwise, you know, because there were a few... I'm I think there were a, that has to be I think, said, there, James, I think but... there were a few sort of... Uh, I mean, I, I, like beer cans, you know, being thrown at that sort of moment in time <laughs> after they didn't come on, you know. <laughs> what about you, Tom? Man, I don't. I ain't got no funny stories. Uh, you told me one that I know I about Billy Idol being in the club with you. That they said that that's where they first saw you. No, I mean I'm not being funny. Their memories are a little hazy. Some of those things aren't quite <laughs> the really? way they said it. I, I mean I don't remember that whole thing where apparently I gave them a reggae cassette and it changed the way they were making. You know, I don't know. I do remember when BAD did a seven night run at the Irving Plaza, New York City, and then one night, sounds like I'm blowing my own trumpet. I am. Jagger. Bowie, Frampton, Dave Stewart, Jimmy Cliff, all come to see us play the same fucking night. Ooh. After the cut to backstage after the show, Bob Gruen's trying to set up a picture. There's David Bowie, Jimmy Cliff, moi, Nick and the band. <laughs> and, you know, um, Gruen's foaming at the teeth trying to get this picture. All of a sudden, Mike D comes in and he's totally oblivious, doesn't give a fuck about anybody that's inside. <laughs> We've just stood in, just about to take a picture. Mike D's like, Don, Don, you got any weed? We need to make a big fucking doobie, man. <laughs> and like, and like, what was interesting is, like I said, he had no reverence for anybody. I mean, David was like... <laughs> so, yeah, Beastie Boys. Yeah. You never got the photo. We did. <laughs> oh, right. No, the, the, we did get the picture. And in fact, there's one with him going like this. <laughs> in front of everybody, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. literally photos. They're on them. Google somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's great. Well, I'd like to say thanks very much, Don. Thanks Thank very you. much, James. Thanks Thank for, you. for being a lovely audience. Thanks very much. We've been talking about the beasties. Thanks for giving up your lunch break. Yes, exactly.
of Trade Radio. Reviews and subscriptions help to support what we do. So if you like what you hear, then please rate us on iTunes.